Absolutely. Jesus is the great emancipator. He is the great liberator. And that's the reason Jesus is better. He's better because no one can do what Jesus can do. No one. No one at all. And that's the theme of the book of Hebrews. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, turn there again. The book of Hebrews, and we're turning to chapter 7. And we're continuing our journey through this wonderful, wonderful portion of God's Word that does tell us how great our Savior is, how much better He is than anything else this world or religion could ever offer to us. So turn there, if you would, Hebrews chapter 7. If you like to use the Bible, it's provided for you. That's page uh, 1004, 1004. Now, it is wonderful to uh, be back with you. Uh, as many of you know, last uh, couple weeks, there were group of about 28 from here, our church, that were blessed to take a, a, a trip, a, a Rome and Reformation uh, trip. So we were able to spend three days in, in Rome and then to visit some of the incredible uh, sites of the Great Reformation, learn so much and enjoy so much. It was incredible, incredible uh, experience. And uh, I don't need a book of illustrations. I got filled up for the next year. You're just going to be hearing about it all the time. You're going to have to put up with it, really. But it was an incredible, incredible uh, week. And so many uh, scenes. It just blessed my heart. But I do want you to know that there was one scene that over and over again, over those uh, nearly two weeks, that just filled my heart with sadness. In fact, I saw the same scene in every one of the great cathedrals that we entered. Beautiful, beautiful buildings, all inspiring in their beauty. But in every one, I saw it. In every one, I saw it, and it filled my heart with sadness. What was it that I saw? I saw a rope. Sometimes a fancy rope, an elegant rope. But in every one of these cathedrals, there it was, a rope. And it filled my heart with sadness because that rope is the symbol of the false gospel. It's the symbol in religion, but it's the symbol of the false gospel. Let me tell you where the rope was in every one of those great cathedrals. It was stretched across the platform of the church, between the platform and the people, what is known as the high altar. And what did that rope proclaim? That rope proclaimed this is a sacred place. Up, up here on this platform, this is a place of sacrifice up here. And you can't come up here. That rope also said, this, this is a place of sacred activity. Up here, something is going to happen. Bread and wine 
are going to be turned into the literal body and blood of Jesus. And it also said this is a sacred place because only sacred people can come up here. Not ordinary people. Only sacred people can come up to this sacred spot and do the sacred thing that only they can do. And this rope separates between all others and the few who can come and perform that sacred ritual this, that is supposed to provide salvation. I saw that rope in the grandest of cathedrals and it filled my heart with sadness because that rope is a symbol of bondage. It's a symbol of bondage. And that rope is a symbol, yes, it's a symbol of a false gospel, a false message because, friends, I want you to know in Jesus Christ, the ropes come down. In Jesus Christ, all are welcomed. All may come. Nothing else must happen. There's no special place where it can only happen and special people who can only make it happen. The ropes come down in Jesus. They come down. That's why Jesus is better. He's better. And our Lord Jesus Christ, we have a better priesthood. We have a better priesthood. And Jesus changed everything. He changed everything. One of the things that Jesus changed, and he changed it forever, he changed forever this thing known as the priesthood. And it was a startling change. Uh, the only priesthood that the Jewish people had known for 1,500 years was the, the priesthood that was based on the order of Aaron. That is, Aaron, the brother of Moses, all of his descendants, only they alone could be the priests. And for 1,500 years, that was the only priesthood that the people of Israel had ever known. But Jesus changed all that. We, we could say, and what we're going to see this morning, is that Jesus changed it back to something 500 years before Aaron. 500 years before Moses, there was a priesthood that existed. And that's the priesthood that Jesus brought back. And it's called here in our text this morning, chapter 7, we're going to notice, it's called the priesthood of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. How would you like to have to say that word 50 times this morning? God's message through the author of Hebrews here is that the priesthood of the order of Aaron, this priesthood that's existed for 1,500 years, it has to be set aside. It has to be set aside and it must be abandoned. 
Because there is a priesthood that has come, a priesthood that's called the priesthood of the order of Melchizedek that was established. And this order has only one priest and one priest forever and ever and that is the priest, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now I want to say that this passage that we're looking at at this morning is a very challenging passage. It's, it's, it's a challenging one to understand, especially for us 2,000 years removed from what it meant to be a Jewish person who has become a follower of Jesus, the Messiah, and is being required to set aside what has been centuries after centuries of tradition and teaching handed down. It's hard for us 2,000 years later to wrap our minds around it. However, this passage is in the Bible. And guess what? The Bible is the eternal word of God. And everything in the Bible is written down by the will of God to help us understand who he is. And how we can rightly know him and serve him. So here's what I'd like us to do today as we're just continuing this journey. What I'd like us to do is just read through this passage. That's what I plan to do. Just read through it. And I'm going to make some comments as we go through these verses. Sort of just a running commentary to try, if I might, with the Holy Spirit's help, to open it up to our hearts. And then I'd like to conclude with just some personal takeaways I, I want to answer the question before you leave this morning so what so what there was a guy named Melchizedek so what that Jesus is this priest after the order of Melchizedek what in the world does that mean to me today so let's do that the first thing I want us to look at is we walk through this passage, is that the Lord is teaching about the greatness of the priest Melchizedek. The greatness of a priest whose name was Melchizedek. Now the theme begins not in chapter 7 verse 1, but go back a few verses if you would to chapter 6 and look if you would beginning at verse 19. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope. We have a hope that is sure and steadfast. It's like an anchor. And it enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That is symbolically into the very presence of God in the heavenly temple. Verse 8. Who is this anchor? Steadfast and sure. It's where Jesus has gone. He has gone into the presence of God the Father. He has ascended back to heaven. And he is there now as our forerunner. He's gone on our behalf. And he has become a high priest forever. And the key word is forever. Jesus has gone back to heaven to become the high priest of his people forever. And then notice, 
after the order of Melchizedek. After the order of Melchizedek. Now, that leads us to who is this Melchizedek and why is Jesus a priest like him? Well, that's where chapter 7, verse 1 picks it up. It says in verse 1, But this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Now, the writer is saying Jesus is a high priest forever. He's the final and only priest. He's the culmination of the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a, a figure who's only mentioned in just a couple of verses in the Bible. He's mentioned only back in Genesis chapter 14. Now, here's what happens. We'll not turn there, but Genesis chapter 14 tells us that there was an invasion of a coalition of five kings into the Jordan River Valley in the time of Abraham. They attacked the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the, of the valley and carried the inhabitants off. Now, normally, this would have meant nothing to Abraham. But one of the citizens in Sodom was his nephew, Lot, and his wife and family. And Abraham said, so to speak, I'm not going to have it. <laughs> it's not happening. So Abraham called together a band of brothers, 300 men, and chased down this coalition of kings to set free his nephew Lot and his family. And the Bible says that Abraham pursued them all the way to Damascus up in Syria. He defeated them in battle. He released the hostages. He took the spoil along with the men, the spoil of these kings, and he brought it back to the land that God had given to him. And so Abraham came back with these hostages that had been freed. And the Bible then says this, as Abraham came back, a man came out to meet him named Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who was a priest of the Most High God, El Elyon. That is a title for the God of Abraham. He is a priest of Abraham's God. And he is also the king or the prince of a town called Salem. Perhaps Jerusalem. We can't be sure about that. But the Bible says that when Abraham saw Melchizedek, this priest, coming to him, that Abraham offered him tithes. 
of all of the spoil taken from those pagan kings to offer it to El Elyon, Almighty God, to offer it through his priest, Melchizedek. Now, that's the only time Melchizedek personally is mentioned. There's one other reference, and we'll come to that later on. But now notice verse 2, the second part. It says that he is first. That is, this Melchizedek is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. What does Melchizedek mean? It comes from two words, Melech and Zadok. Melech, Zadok, king, Melech, Zadok, righteousness. He is king of righteousness. And he is also the king of Salem, which means he is the king of peace because Salem is shalom. It means peace. So here we have this elusive figure who existed in the time of Abraham, land, living in the land promised and given to Abraham, who is a priest of Abraham's God. And he is the king of righteousness by name. And he is the prince of peace. Now, don't you find that interesting? King of righteousness and prince of peace. Now, another characteristic the author points out about Melchizedek is found in verse 3. Let's just continue working through this. This Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, what does this mean? It means that there's no genealogy associated with Melchizedek. It doesn't mean he didn't have a mother and a father. doesn't mean he's an angelic being. doesn't mean that... He's a pre-incarnate Christ, as some may say. And we'll address that in just a moment. But it means he doesn't have a genealogy. The priesthood of Aaron, they had to know exactly their genealogy. But this man, we don't know his father. We don't know his mother. And we don't know the day of his death. He's, he's endless in his days. And like that, he resembles the Son of God does not say here he is the son of God that this is Jesus Christ pre-incarnate but he resembles the son of God because the son of God is without beginning or end of days and without father or mother through all eternity only a mother in his incarnation he resembles the son of God verse 4 how great he is, this Melchizedek. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. How great must this man be that Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish people, would offer tithes to him. Verse 5. Now he makes his application. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office, now he's comparing this to the 
descendants of Aaron, the tribe of Levi was the tribe of the priests, the Levites. They served in the temple and the tabernacle. Those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. Verse 6, but this man who does not have his descendant from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him, blessed Abraham who had received the promises. It was Abraham who had received the promises of God. It was Abraham who had been given this land, yet it's Abraham who's paying this man tithes. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Now that's a stunning statement. The writer here is telling Jewish people who are now believers in Jesus that this Melchizedek is greater than their greatest ancestor, Abraham. Studying statement. What he is saying here is that the tribe of Levi, which was the priestly tribe of the Aaron's priesthood, they received tithes from the descendants of Abraham. But this man is so great that even Abraham paid him tithes. Therefore, his priesthood's got to be a greater priesthood than the priesthood of the Levites, the descendants of Levi, the descendants of Aaron. Let's go on, verse 8. He's comparing these priesthoods now. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Now, this doesn't mean that Melchizedek is still alive. What it means, there's no earthly record of his death. No genealogy. No beginning of his life. No ending of his life. He's receiving tithes. Verse 9. One might even say... That Levi himself, now who's Levi? Levi himself is the descendant of Abraham and all of the priests came from the tribe of Levi. So one might say that Levi himself who receives tithes from the other tribes paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor. Levi wasn't even born yet. He was within Abraham. And in a figure, he paid tithes to this great high priest named Melchizedek. Now the point here is that Melchizedek's priesthood was a temporary priesthood. It was eternal priesthood, rather. And Aaron's priesthood was temporary. Let me say that again. The point being, Melchizedek's priesthood is never ending. There's no mention of his death. That's why he's like the Son of God, as we'll see. But Aaron's priesthood, this priesthood that comes down through the family of Aaron, it was temporary. It was temporary. Now, why does the writer discuss 
Melchizedek this way. Why does he do this? He's discussing Melchizedek to prove to these Jewish people, listen carefully, who were being tempted to go back to the old ways, who were being tempted to go back to the worship of the temple, who were being tempted to go back to the sacrificial system, to leave following Jesus and go back to a ritual religion led by a priesthood. The writer is saying you cannot do that because there is a priesthood now that exists forever and it's the only legitimate priesthood. It's the priesthood of Jesus Christ. That's what he is saying. Now in verse 11, he asks a piercing question. A piercing question. He says, now, to prove his point, If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, that's the priesthood of the tribe of Levi. Levitical means associated with the tribe of Levi. If perfection had been attainable through this Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise? Who is this another priest? This another priest is Jesus. If the Old Testament priesthood brought perfection, why would there need to be, why would there need to be another priest arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? He says, now think this through. Verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. What's he saying? You can't pick and choose. You can't say, well, I know I'm under Christ. I believe in Jesus, but I just want to go back and have this old kind of priesthood. The priesthood that was so organized and had so much glory to it. And there was so much pomp and circumstance. I really love that and I want to go back to that. He says you can't do that. Because if the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, you can't go back and take a part of it. Because the whole thing has been done away. Friends, how do we know that is true? We know that is true because when Jesus died on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, what happened? That curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from common people, it was torn in two from top to bottom. What was it saying? It was saying, this is all finished. This priesthood is over. This 1,500 years of worshiping me this way is now fulfilled and completed in Jesus Christ. It's all done away. Now notice, if you would, verses 13 and 14. For one, he says, there's been a change in the law. The law has changed forever. For the one, that means Jesus, if you mark your Bible, for the one Jesus of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. 
from which no one has ever served at the altar. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, not the tribe of Levi. Jesus was born as a descendant of the tribe of Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Jesus was born not of the tribe of Levi. He was born of the tribe of Judah. And there had never been a priest that had come of the tribe of Judah until the king and lion of Judah arrived, right? Who is the great and final priest. He's the king priest. There never was in all of recorded history of God's people a person who was king and priest at the same time. The priest had their duties. The king had their duties. The priest came from the tribe of Levi. The kings were to come from the tribe of Judah, the descendants of David. But both came together in the perfect king priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has set up a priesthood that's like no other. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident. It's more evident. When another priest, that's Jesus, arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Now tie it together. He's saying Jesus is like Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a type of Jesus. In what way? Who has become a priest? Jesus has become a priest. Not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. Jesus' priesthood is not based on the fact that he was descended from Levi or Aaron because he wasn't. So what's the basis of Jesus' great priesthood? He is ordained a priest by the power of an indestructible life. An indestructible life. He ever lives. He never will be succeeded because his life is indestructible. He's a priest forever. Now verse 17 says this. For it was witnessed of him. It was witnessed of him. Now this is a reference to Psalm 110. Mark that in your Bible next to verse 17. Psalm 110. It was witnessed of him. This is of Messiah. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. Here's what it says. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now that was written a thousand years before Jesus was born. And it was written a thousand years after Melchizedek. But what was the prophecy? The prophecy was this. There is coming the Messiah. And the Messiah will be a priest. Not after the order of the Levites. But he will be a priest like Melchizedek who is without father or mother, 
whose life goes on and on, and there will never be a successor to the priesthood of Jesus because his life is indestructible. Can someone say amen? amen? All right. Now, you know what? That's some deep plowing right there, okay? How many of you feel a little brain fatigue right here? Me too. Wow. That is... That's a very, very tightly woven argument to prove to Jewish people who had worshipped under the old way of the Levitical priesthood, who had worshipped for 1,500 years this way, not to go back because the new high priest has come. And he is at the Father's right hand. His name is Jesus. That's why that passage was written. First and foremost. But as in everything in the scripture, there's always personal takeaways for us. And this is how I want to close. I want us to be able to leave this morning and say, so what? And answer that. What, what does that mean to me? I, I, I get it. I appreciate it. And I embrace it. But what does it mean to me. Who's got to leave this place in a few minutes. And go try to live another day the best you can. What's it mean to me? Well I'll tell you ought to cause you to live with some praise and with some privilege on your life. First, the praise. As you leave this morning reading this, you can praise God for who we have in Jesus Christ. We can praise God for who we have. What does this passage mean? It means this. We do not need an earthly priest because we have a heavenly priest, Jesus Christ. There is one priest for the redeemed sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. There is only one priest for us and that priest is the priest, King Jesus. He's the only priest. He's the only priest. He's a perfect priest. Guess what? We need a perfect priest. You know why? Because we're very imperfect people. As a matter of fact, it's worse than that. We're not just imperfect. What are we? We're sinners. We're sinners. And we need someone who's perfect to represent us who are so far from what we ought to be. And thank God every day of your life you have someone praying for you and it's the priest, Jesus Christ. He's praying for sinners. Jesus said he didn't come to help the well people. He said, I've not come to seek the righteous, those who think they're righteous. I've come to call what? Sinners to repent. He's a perfect priest. He's a perpetual priest. 
He has an indestructible life. There will never be a day. There will never be a moment throughout the cycling eons of eternity that there will not be a representative for you at the Father's right hand. Throughout the endless ages of eternity, there will be someone who is on your behalf before God. He's there now and he always will be. He's our priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. An indestructible life. He ever lives. What is he always doing? What's Jesus always doing? He's interceding for sinners. He's praying for us. He's praying for lost sinners who don't know him. And he's praying especially for sinner saints, people who are his children, but we're still sinners. And he's praying for us. Jesus says to us just what he said to Peter one day. Peter, Satan has wanted to take you and shake you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. And when you are turned around, and you will be turned around, I want you to strengthen your brothers. Thank God, when we've denied our Lord in our actions and our attitudes, and maybe in our, even in our words like Peter, aren't you thankful he does not deny us? Jesus intercedes for sinners, and he invites sinners. Why is Jesus... There, he's interceding for sinners and he's inviting. Jesus is not a priest. Listen, he's not a priest who says, you stay away from here. Don't, don't you come up here. You, you can't come in here. Uh, this is special. This is just the place just for me. What is going on up here is just for me. No, he's not like that. He is saying, no, I want you to come. I want you to come into the presence of God. I, I, I've, I've torn the veil in two. I've taken the ropes down. You come. I love what it says in chapter 4, verse 15. Don't you love this? Just a page back in your Bible. Verse 15 of Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He has been tempted as we are. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Thank God through Jesus Christ. Listen, brothers and sisters. Listen, church. Through Jesus Christ, we have a ropeless religion. There are no ropes. There's no rope saying, stay back. Don't come up here. You're not special enough. You don't earn it. You haven't had the special work done on you. No, that does not exist. Jesus Christ is the one who makes us worthy and invites us to come as we are. To find grace and mercy in the hour of our need. Second takeaway. Praise God for who we have and praise God for who we are. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, guess what? 
we share his identity. That doesn't mean we become Jesus, but we share in who he is. We share in his identity. I'll not ask you to turn there, but there's an incredible passage in Revelation chapter 5. It's a look into heaven, and it's a listening to the glorified saints worshiping in heaven. And here's what they say. It's, put it on the screens here if you would. Here's what they say. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, that is the title deed of the earth, all creation, to open its seals, for you were slain. By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, people and nation, now notice, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What is Jesus? He is priest. What do we become? A kingdom of priests, meaning we have the privilege of coming into the presence of God as priests because of our great high priest. What is Jesus? He's the king. And through faith in him, we are princes and princesses. We are children of the king. And he's going to share his rule and reign with us forever. There's nobody like Jesus, is there? Can you imagine? We become what he is in our privileges. Last thing. We praise God for what we have, who we are, and the privilege of what we can do. What is it that we can do that Jesus does? You know what we can do? We can intercede. You're never more like Jesus than when you're praying for others. We can intercede. Some people say, you know, Sam, all I can do, I can't do much anymore. All I can do is pray. All you can do is pray. All you can do is talk to the God of heaven and earth. All you can do is plead on behalf of others with the one who holds the world in his hand. I'd say that's something special. We can intercede. And we can invite. We can invite people to come to our king. What is our king doing? He's saying, come to me. Come to me and rest. The ropes are down. The, the curtain has been torn. You come, come. And we can do that. We can invite others. Thank God there are no ropes, right? Thank God there are no ropes around the altar. And friends, I want to tell you something. Listen, there is no altar. The altar doesn't exist anymore. I am not standing on an altar. This is not an altar where a re-sacrifice of Jesus takes place. This is not an altar where we're going to once again carry out the death of Jesus. Friends, the altar doesn't exist. The altar was the cross of Calvary. And the empty tomb means the altar is over with. We don't have an altar. We have a throne in heaven with a prince of peace seated on it. 
There is no altar. Wherever you see an altar that says somebody special has to do something special for people who aren't special, that's not the gospel. We don't call people to the altar. We call people to the throne. We call them to Jesus, the loving King. We invite them to come. And we can all do that. Friends, you don't have to have all the answers. You just have to have confidence in your heart that Jesus is the answer. And invite people to come to Jesus. Be willing to walk with them. Be willing to love them. Be willing to befriend them. Don't you dare to witness to someone that you're not willing to walk with. Invite people in the love of God to come to Jesus knowing that he is the answer. And friend, whatever your need is this morning, I don't know what it is. Our needs are as varied as our faces. But I do know this. Jesus is the answer. And I invite you to him. I invite you to him. Let's bow.